It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Hi, it's Vanessa, and thanks for subscribing to Historical Figures. You've probably noticed that over the past couple of weeks, we've been sharing episodes from the new season of Famous Fates, titled Falls from Grace. Every Wednesday, Falls from Grace features two new episodes, each focusing on a different scandalous figure from history. Carter and I are incredibly proud of this season and strongly urge you to head over to the Famous Fates feed and subscribe today. These episodes are all free and only available on Spotify. In the meantime, I'm excited to share one of our new episodes on the rock and roll pianist with a rocky and controversial personal life, Jerry Lee Lewis. If you'd like to hear today's other episode on record producer, recluse, and convicted murderer Phil Spector, head over to the Famous Fates feed on Spotify and subscribe for free today. It was 1957, Christmas season in New York City, and 22-year-old Jerry Lee Lewis had the biggest single in the world, Great Balls of Fire. Now, his legions of fans were lining up to see him play live at the world-famous Paramount Theater. Jerry Lee was nicknamed The Killer because of the way his frenzied performances slayed audiences. True to his reputation, when Jerry Lee finally took the stage, the crowd went wild. But even as some of the most beautiful women in the Big Apple threw themselves at Jerry Lee, he could only think of his brand new bride back home in Memphis. At just 22 years old, he was already on his third marriage. But this time, he was certain he'd gotten it right. He and Myra would be together forever. If only the world would accept that she was his 13-year-old cousin. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. And this is Season 2 of Famous Fates, Falls from Grace. This season, we're examining once-revered historical figures whose stories ended in less-than-savory ways. Every week, we're bringing you two episodes examining the lives of two fascinating people in the same industry. They were beloved for their incredible accomplishments until they were reviled for their sins. You can listen to all of ParCast's shows on Spotify or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. This week, we're covering two music industry greats. In this episode, rock and roll superstar Jerry Lee Lewis, whose scandalous marriage to his 13-year-old cousin derailed his career at the height of his popularity.
1957, Jerry Lee Lewis's second single sold a million copies in its first 10 days, making him one of the most famous and popular men in music. But in his heart, he was still just a pious country boy. He'd nearly become a preacher until he got kicked out of the Southwest Bible Institute for playing boogie-woogie covers of hymns. There was another rock and roll country boy who made it big in the 1950s, one Elvis Presley. The papers portrayed him and Jerry as rivals. Of course, Jerry Lee enjoyed it when his singles crept up the charts past Elvis's, but the truth was the two men were good friends. They'd shared many long nights at Graceland, sitting next to each other at Elvis's piano, singing old gospel songs. Their personalities were quite different. Elvis, nicknamed the King, was growing shy and withdrawn under the pressures of his worldwide fame. Jerry Lee was a rapidly rising star who got more extroverted and brash each day. Yet the two men knew and understood each other better than anybody else. Both men were born in 1935 in the neighboring Deep South states of Louisiana and Mississippi. Both began their recording careers at Sun Records with producer Sam Phillips. Both started by copying the sound and performance styles of black performers from the South, but playing to white audiences. Jerry Lee's first hit, Whole Lot of Shakin' Going On, was originally recorded by a black woman, Big Mabel. By 1957, both men had become international celebrities and perhaps the two richest young country boys in the world. Jerry Lee was making $14,000 a show. That's about $130,000 in today's dollars. Elvis still made more, but word on the street was Jerry Lee had a shot at surpassing him. In December of 1957, Elvis was drafted into the U.S. Army. It was announced that he'd serve a two-year tour of duty in West Germany. Fans wept openly in the streets and wrote angry letters to their congressmen. But for Jerry Lee Lewis's manager, Oscar Davis, this was great news. His client's biggest competition would be out of the game for two whole years. Oscar got busy booking a series of concerts that would help Jerry Lee vault past his friend, both on the charts and in fans' hearts. While the king was away, the killer would play. Specifically, he'd play a 1958 European tour. Years before the Beatles and the British invasion, a tow-headed blonde rocker from America's segregated South planned to play 27 shows in England, something no American rock and roll act had ever done. Everything in Jerry Lee's career had led to this moment. His first single, Whole Lot of Shakin' Going On, which hit number one on both the R&B and country charts, his nationally televised performances on The Steve Allen Show and Dick Clark's American Bandstand, even that incident in Nashville where a crowd of screaming fans stripped him down to his underwear. Now he was poised to become the very first true transatlantic rock star. If his record sold out his UK tour too, he'd find Elvis's throne waiting for him when he got home. But before flying off to Bonnie, England, Jerry Lee had some personal business to attend to. There was someone he wanted to marry and he didn't want to wait. Even though he was still married to his second wife, Jane Mitchum. 
We can't say there was a woman he wanted to marry, because Myra Gale Brown wasn't yet a woman. She was only 13 years old, and she was Jerry Lee's first cousin once removed, the daughter of his cousin and bassist, J.W. Brown. But in the second week of December, Jerry Lee proposed anyway. Myra accepted. The two were married almost immediately on December 12, 1957. Because Myra was too young to legally wed, they had to use a fraudulent marriage license. After obtaining it, with the help of a 20-year-old woman pretending to be Myra, the couple took their bogus license to Hernando, Mississippi. A particular Baptist reverend in that town was known for marrying people who were obviously not old enough, as long as they presented a marriage license that had the right names on it. Twenty-two-year-old Jerry Lee had married for the first time at the age of 16, and his two sisters were married off at 12 and 14, respectively. He drew the line at siblings, but a first cousin wouldn't have been off-limits. In fact, in the Old South, kinship unions were commonplace, more the norm than the exception for the wealthy planter class. In the antebellum era, wealthy white people in the South live far apart on account of each family's large land holdings. Interracial marriage was out of the question, and even marrying someone of a lower social class was taboo. So many of them married within their own large extended families. Jerry Lee Lewis was born generations after the Civil War, but the tradition had spread to white Southerners of all economic backgrounds. So Jerry Lee had no idea that people from other races and regions didn't marry within the family. Myra Brown, who became Myra Lewis that day in December, had grown up in Louisiana and Tennessee. Unlike her famous cousin, she had never traveled. She spent her days in school learning about the Cold War. In the evenings, she called herself deputy mom to her toddler brother. From birth, Myra had been told that the pinnacle of achievement for a girl of her social class was a rich husband, a tidy home, a baby, and a rose garden. Jerry Lee Lewis was offering her all those things, plus a brand new Cadillac convertible. It's unclear now whether or not Jerry Lee pressured his cousin into marrying him. At one time, in legal filings and a biography, Myra said she was frightened and reluctant. More recently, she's given new interviews and written a second book in which she describes their elopement differently. Myra now says she believed at the time she was grown and ready for marriage. Of course, Jerry Lee certainly must have encouraged her to see herself that way. However Myra felt about getting married, her father was livid. Jerry Lee didn't ask for J.W. Brown's permission before taking Myra as his wife. In fact, he wasn't even brave enough to tell J.W. himself. It was the housekeeper who spilled the beans after finding Myra's marriage license in a drawer. Over the years, people have told a few different stories about how J.W. reacted. Brown recalls that he fully intended to kill Jerry Lee. Others, including Jerry Lee, have said that J.W. threatened murder, but he never meant it. He did come to Sun Records with a pistol, but producer Sam Phillips talked him down. Although the marriage of a minor without her parents' consent was illegal, Jerry Lee was never prosecuted. 
J.W. considered pressing charges, but the local district attorney's office convinced him to stand down. After things cooled down between the Lewises and the Browns, Jerry Lee moved into Myra's parents' home temporarily while he figured out their future. Now, not only had Jerry Lee married Myra against her father's wishes, he was sleeping with her under her father's roof. It's a wonder J.W. never fired that pistol. He wasn't exactly hiding his bride, not even from his estranged second wife. Jerry Lee didn't tell Jane he'd married again without divorcing first, but he didn't tell anybody not to tell her either. When she found out, she couldn't claim surprise. He had still been married to his first wife when he took up with Jane. Nor was he hiding the marriage from the world. The new couple openly bought a house in Memphis. They even traveled to Jerry Lee's native Louisiana together to visit his family. None of his kinfolk were bothered by the age of his third wife. Of course, the same couldn't be said for the rest of the world. That's coming up next. Now, back to the story. Jerry Lee was happy. His parents were happy for him. That was all that mattered in his book. He didn't even wonder what people might think as he set off to New York in March of 1958 to start a domestic tour. His last chance to perfect his act before those all-important shows across the pond. There were three headliners, Lewis, Buddy Holly, and Chuck Berry. The package, called The Big Beat, had been put together by Alan Freed, the New York DJ who popularized the term rock and roll. The only thing left to decide was who would play last. Because Chuck Berry was black, in his early years, he sometimes had shows canceled at the last minute when he showed up and the booker met him in person. Now, he had little interest in yielding the closing spot on the concert program to someone like Jerry Lee, who'd gotten famous by playing black music to white audiences. The way they settled the argument has become a shaggy dog story of rock and roll. As the often retold tale goes, Jerry Lee initially lost the fight. He would play second after Buddy Holly and before Chuck Berry. He turned in a characteristically over-the-top performance, Kicking his piano bench back into the wings where Barry was waiting, he flailed all over the keys with just about every part of his body. He stood on top of the piano. Then, while he played Great Balls of Fire, he poured gasoline all over the piano and lit a match. At least that's the legend. While it makes a great story, there's no evidence it actually took place. The Big Beat exemplified everything that made rock and roll a subject of mass parental hysteria. Teens in the audience drank hard, danced dirty, and passed around handfuls of pills. That went for Jerry Lee, too. He could hold his liquor, once bragging that he had to drink a fifth of tequila to sober up and do his shows. But his big habit in those days was amphetamine pills, which kept him awake and energized for those frenzied hours of beating pianos to death on stage. The long-term effects of popping a few uppers a day weren't yet well understood. Doctors and psychologists still mostly thought of addiction as a weakness of moral character. Jerry Lee, still a God-fearing, Bible-owning Christian despite his rock star lifestyle, assumed he'd be able to stop any time he liked. 
When the tour hit Boston on May 3rd, Jerry Lee got himself pumped up with his usual mixture of amphetamines and liquor. He intended to give the people what they came for, no more, no less. He'd play Breathless, Don't Be Cruel, and Big-Legged Woman. Then his first big hit, Whole Lot of Shakin' Going On. Finally, for the big finish, he'd bring down the house with great balls of fire. But it was clear right away that this would be no ordinary show. The audience was unruly and wild-eyed. The Boston arena was filled with a strange electricity. As Jerry Lee started playing, the room boiled over. Suddenly, teenagers and young adults were rushing the stage. They blew through police barricades, chased by uniformed officers brandishing their truncheons. Cops shut the show down. Big Beat promoter Alan Freed took the microphone and yelled, I guess the Boston police don't want you kids to have any fun, as the police in question shoved concertgoers out onto the street. Jerry Lee Lewis and his fellow rock stars had to sneak out of the venue with no help from Alan Freed, who was busy being arrested. Freed was later charged with inciting a riot. Two days later, on May 5th, 1958, Boston's mayor banned rock and roll concerts. When Jerry Lee Lewis's long-awaited debut album dropped, the Boston incident was better promotion than money could buy. Even though Sam Phillips inexplicably left Jerry Lee's two biggest hits off the self-titled album, he was sure it would sell well. The only thing left to do was tour and promote it. The rest of the world was eager to hear music so exciting that teenagers in America were rioting over it. Jerry Lee had 27 shows lined up for his UK tour later in May, and tickets were selling fast. All Jerry Lee Lewis had to do to become king of rock and roll was keep doing his job, show up every night, pound the daylights out of whatever busted piano the venue set out for him, maybe sign a few autographs and give an interview. But he wanted more. Not only did he want his UK tour to sell out and his album to top the charts, he wanted Myra by his side to witness it. His manager, Oscar Davis, advised against bringing her. The English papers already didn't care for the idea of a rough-and-tumble American from the Jim Crow South giving concerts in their country. If they got wind of this marriage, they'd tear Jerry Lee to bits, and the American media would follow suit. But not only did Jerry Lee refuse to leave Myra in Memphis, he refused to even tell her his manager had suggested it. He'd never mentioned to her that anyone besides her father might object to their marriage. Nobody else warned Myra either. She got no media training, not even a heads up about the paparazzi. Jerry Lee did tie up one loose end before England. On the 13th of May, he finalized his divorce from Jane. Of course, this didn't actually make his wedding to Myra legal. Not only was he still yoked to his second wife when he married Myra, he'd forged the marriage certificate. Rumors began to circulate within the industry that Jerry Lee was sabotaging his career and headed for scandal. Dick Clark's musical variety show Bandstand canceled a scheduled performance just before the UK tour began. On May 21st, Jerry Lee and Myra jetted off to England without a plan for dealing with the British media. 
Thirteen-year-old Myra still had no idea that outside the Deep South, it wasn't normal for a girl her age to be married. As for Jerry Lee, he figured the fuddy-duddies would hate him no matter what he did, and the teenagers would accept him no matter what he did. So he didn't worry. He should have. As soon as he landed in England, on May 22nd, they were beset by reporters covering the big arrival from overseas. Instantly, the journalist asked about the slender, baby-faced brunette on Jerry Lee's arm. Myra looked the 13 she was. Even a grown woman's clothes, jewelry, and hairstyle didn't make her look older. Still with no idea that this would be controversial, Myra cheerfully introduced herself. I'm his wife. Faced with the reality of explaining all this at a teeming press conference, Jerry Lee rethought his plan about telling the whole truth and nothing but the truth. He confirmed Myra was his wife, but he claimed she was 15 and they'd only been married for two months. Of course, in reality, they'd been married for five months, and even if it was two, their marriage would still be illegal on the grounds of bigamy. The reporters asked Myra about being such a young wife. She told the truth, her truth. As a Southern girl from a family prone to kinship marriages, Myra said that in Tennessee, a girl could get married at 10 if she could find a man. This sent the press conference into gobsmacked delight. This was media gold, a massive scandal, gift wrapped and dropped in their laps. In those first few days, before the press could get out the story, Jerry Lee kicked off his tour to much fanfare. His thousands of British fans had no idea about his wife yet. His first show sold out. Maybe this tour would still make him the new king of rock and roll after all. But reporters were busy at the Daily Mirror. Before the second performance of the tour, they dug through American public records and found out about Myra's real age, her familial relationship to Jerry Lee, and the illegal bigamous marriage. When that headline hit the papers the next day, Britain recoiled in disgust. Jerry Lee tried again to smooth things over with honesty. He explained that he married Jane only because she was pregnant and that he was already married to his first wife at the time, which made the second marriage illegal. Therefore, it didn't count. Since then, he'd eventually divorced his first wife, so by the third marriage, everything, in his mind, was squared up. This fuzzy marriage math did nothing to placate the reporters or their readers. Here, they wrote, was proof that American rock and roll had no place in Britain. Its standard bearers were rednecks who took their 13-year-old cousins as brides. The second show of the tour went on, but more than half the seats were empty. By the third show, people were chanting, Cradle Robber and Go Home. By May 26th, Four days into the trip, venue owners canceled every show left on the tour. Instead of skyrocketing to global fame, Jerry Lee was suffering the ultimate humiliation. Not only did his fans not want to see him, they were so angry with him that venue owners were afraid for his safety if he showed up to perform. Jerry Lee packed his suitcase, his child bride, and his wounded pride for the long flight back to Tennessee. As soon as he arrived back in Memphis, 
Jerry Lee made arrangements to marry Myra again. Now that his divorce was official, this wedding on June 4, 1958, would be legal. And this time, he even had her parents' consent. But it was too little too late to save Jerry Lee's star from falling. His bookings got canceled. Dick Clark, one of his first and biggest supporters in the TV world, stopped taking his calls. He'd expected $30,000 for some of his shows in the UK, worth more than a quarter of a million dollars today. Now he was lucky to get $250 for a performance. And there was still that awkward matter of his self-titled debut album that was supposed to be the thing that cemented his spot as a legend. Now it was just taking up space on record store shelves. Jerry Lee tried to fight back. He wrote a letter to his fans defending himself and published it as a full-page ad in Billboard magazine. The letter barely addressed his marriage to Myra at all. He seemed to think that people were upset about Jane, his second ex-wife. He pointed out that he'd be paying Jane child support $750 per month, worth about $6,700 today. That, of course, wasn't the problem. Jerry Lee was just totally incapable of seeing anything fundamentally wrong with his third marriage. Oscar Davis, the manager who'd asked Jerry Lee not to take Myra to England, quit. That left producer Sam Phillips in charge of Jerry Lee's career, and he saw nothing else to do but to take the hit and move on. When radio DJs refused to play Jerry Lee Lewis, Sam didn't fight back. Elvis's throne suddenly looked more secure than ever, even with him still in Germany. The tide of public opinion had shifted. Now there was a good patriotic American boy, people said, not like Jerry Lee Lewis, the cradle robber. It appeared that Jerry Lee's career as a recording artist was over. If he just kept Myra a secret, by now he might be the most famous rock star on earth. There were only two things left for Jerry Lee Lewis to do. Keep playing live shows wherever they'd have him, sometimes for as little as $100, and get his 13-year-old wife pregnant, which he did in time for her to become a mother on February 27, 1959, at the age of 14. He was rarely home to help with the baby. Jerry Lee had no tour bus or charter flights to take him to his gigs now. He drove himself in one of his many Cadillacs. Every night was another dive bar or back alley dance hall. Most of the time he felt more like a circus exhibit than an artist. Come see the freak who married his cousin one night only. He had gotten a lot of fights, especially when he ventured outside the deep south. In Des Moines, Iowa, he stabbed a heckler in the forehead with the sharp butt of his microphone stand. Police were called, but nothing came of it. He would later tell biographer Rick Bragg, quote, They just wanted to whip Jerry Lee Lewis, wanted to beat on my head. Seems like we had to fight every night. The killer now drowned his sorrows in alcohol, painkillers, and whatever women would still have him. While 14-year-old Myra was at home with their baby, Jerry Lee took his last remaining groupies back to his dingy motel rooms on the road. Jerry Lee didn't feel guilty about his infidelity. 
The way he saw things, he was an honorable man. He'd married every woman he'd gotten pregnant. These little affairs on the road were just like the drink that sat on his piano every night, something to keep him going until the next show. Jerry Lee even kept recording new songs, some of them charted in England. Ironically, the first country to expose his marriage was the first to forgive him. But back home in the USA, he was shut out of the charts. And as the 50s drew to a close, so did rock and roll. At least the version of rock and roll Jerry Lee knew. Elvis had started singing ballads. Other rock stars were cutting their hair and going for a more commercial, mainstream sound. By 1960, when Jerry Lee turned 25, he was a washed-up representative of a bygone era. His family life, too, shifted under his feet. In 1961, his parents divorced. They'd never had a good marriage. Now that their children were out of the house, the Lewises announced they couldn't take it anymore. Jerry Lee was devastated. But 1961 also brought a surprising brief return to the charts. Jerry Lee's cover of Ray Charles's What'd I Say made it to number 30 on the Hot 100. It was no great balls of fire, but it breathed a few more gasps of air into his struggling career. Promoters started to think Jerry Lee Lewis might be bookable again. They brought him back to New York. They even planned a comeback tour of England. But just as things were looking up, on Easter Sunday of 1962, 17-year-old Myra called her husband at a motel in Minnesota. Through tears, She delivered the most horrible news he'd ever received. While Myra was cooking Easter dinner in Memphis, their three-year-old son, Steve Allen Lewis, wandered outside and fell in the swimming pool. By the time anyone saw him, he was at the bottom. It was too late for CPR. The devastating loss changed Jerry Lee's life forever. To distract himself from the heartache, he decided to fight one last time for his dying career. That's coming up next. Now, back to the story. On Easter Sunday in 1962, Jerry Lee Lewis lost his three-year-old son to accidental drowning. It was the latest in a series of tragedies following his marriage to his then 13-year-old cousin, Myra, First, his career collapsed, then his parents divorced, and now his little boy was gone. Jerry Lee had always thought there would be time to get to know his son later. They barely saw each other, with Jerry Lee always on the road playing these dinky nightclub gigs. Now it seemed like the height of foolishness that he'd spent his time touring for crumbs instead of at home with his family. Jerry Lee sought comfort in the Bible that had helped him in his younger years. He decided that God would want him to go on, rather than collapsing into a puddle of sorrow. He couldn't go back and spend more time with his son now. Instead, he decided to move forward with his comeback tour of England. Jerry Lee went alone this time. Myra, grieving, stayed home with her family. 
Almost as soon as he landed in England, Jerry Lee realized that this time was different. He played maybe the best show of his career the very first night in Newcastle. It felt so good just to be in front of an adoring crowd again that he played a 15-minute encore while the fans went wild. In the audience, handmade signs read, Welcome back, Jerry Lee. 17-year-old Myra flew out to join him now that she knew England would give her a friendly welcome. She was photographed on the tarmac, dressed chastely but fashionably, carrying her Bible. Jerry Lee brought down the house at every show. Now he realized what a gift it had been playing all those dive bars and strip clubs over the past four years. He'd never let his performing skills get rusty. If anything, he'd honed them while playing for crowds that literally wanted to fight him behind the venue. But the joy of that European tour was short-lived. The world of music was changing in ways he couldn't control. 50s-style rock and roll was breathing its last gasps. With the Beach Boys beginning to release music and the Beatles already recording at Abbey Road, it was a new era. Jerry Lee's tours in 1962 and 1963 were the end for his brand of rock and roll, at least where the Billboard charts were concerned. Even Elvis was now finding more success in acting than in music. Jerry Lee's contract with Sun Records expired in 1963, and he signed to Smash Records. That same year, he and Myra welcomed a daughter, Phoebe. But the Smash Records years were mostly a series of failures for Jerry Lee. The British invasion was suddenly underway. Instead of England importing American rockers to entertain their screaming teens, it was the other way around. It took five years for Jerry Lee Lewis to admit that his time as a teen idol and rock and roller was done. Those were five hard years for Myra, who would later write in court filings that she experienced every form of abuse. The happiest years of their marriage, she now recalls, were before she became an adult. But in time, things started looking up for Jerry Lee, if not for Myra. In 1968, the 33-year-old ex-rock star was approached by a Nashville country music promoter, Eddie Kilroy. He'd heard the country twang in Jerry Lee's singing voice for years, and Eddie thought the killer should try country. Jerry Lee grew up on Hank Williams. He'd always been friendly with his fellow Sun Records artist, Johnny Cash. Now he saw no reason not to try getting back to his country boy roots. He had no other choice. He drove his Cadillac to Nashville and agreed to cover the country record Another Place, Another Time. It was the beginning of a brand new musical life for Jerry Lee Lewis. Almost overnight, he became one of the biggest country stars in the world. At the time, mainstream country music was focused on the slick, heavily produced countrypolitan sound of stars like Lynn Anderson and Charlie Pride. Jerry Lee's style was more soulful and stripped down, winning him fans among purists who missed the emotional honesty of old country music. Suddenly, it was okay to like Jerry Lee Lewis again. 
It was like he'd shed his scandalized reputation and become a whole new man. Country Jerry Lee walked into music halls carrying none of rocker Jerry Lee's baggage. And after all, an awful lot of country fans came from small southern towns where teenage weddings and kinship marriages weren't unheard of. In November of 1969, astronaut Charles Conrad Jr. asked Jerry Lee to cut a special tape of his greatest hits. The newborn country star obliged, and his tape flew to the moon aboard Apollo 12. Conrad later wrote a thank you note, telling 34-year-old Jerry Lee how much it had meant to him to have a taste of home with him among the stars. Jerry Lee Lewis shot for the stars as a young man, and despite falling from grace early in his career, he landed on the moon. Literally. In the years to come, there was both joy and heartbreak in store for Jerry Lee Lewis. Between 1968 and 1973, he recorded 17 top 10 hits, mostly country numbers, both originals and covers. One notable exception was a cover of Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee, a return to his rock and roll roots that shot up the charts. As his career entered a new chapter, so did his private life. Myra filed for divorce in 1970 after hiring a private detective to prove that Jerry Lee was chronically unfaithful. It was a messy divorce with Myra accusing Jerry Lee of both physical and mental abuse in addition to his many affairs. Myra then married her private detective, the only man in her life that she could be sure was on her side. Jerry Lee, however, never settled down. After Myra, Jerry Lee had four more wives. Two died tragically. Wife number four, Jaron Elizabeth Gunn Pate, drowned in a swimming pool in the middle of their 1982 divorce. It was a horrific accident, eerily reminiscent of the death of Jerry Lee's toddler son. His romantic appeal may have held up, but his health collapsed. In 1984, just shy of 50 years old, Jerry Lee's stomach practically exploded. After a lifetime of hard drinking, opiates, and amphetamines, he had a belly full of perforated ulcers. He was hospitalized and given only a 50% chance of survival. He made it and went right back to singing country songs. In 1986, he was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame at the age of 51. In 2006, at the age of 71, Jerry Lee Lewis released his best-selling album ever, Last Man Standing. The album title is appropriate. He may never have lived up to his full potential as a rock star, but Jerry Lee Lewis didn't let scandal take him out of the ballgame forever. He crawled back into music, back up the charts, and back into the good graces of his fans through sheer perseverance. To this day, Jerry Lee Lewis maintains he did nothing wrong by marrying Myra. He's never apologized. In fact, He's angry that he was singled out for it when it seems like every rock star of his generation had a teenage lover. Elvis, who was the same age as Jerry Lee, had Priscilla Ann Wagner living at Graceland from the time she was 14 until he married her at age 21. 
Chuck Berry was arrested in 1959 for transporting a 14-year-old girl across state lines for the purposes of sex. He was convicted and sentenced to three years. Perhaps the best words to close out Myra's story are her own. In a 2014 interview, she said, If you say to me now, there's a 13-year-old girl over here who wants to get married, I'd say, God, please do not do that, little girl. Go to college, get an education, then figure it out. Jerry Lee Lewis didn't exactly change rock and roll music itself. Like Elvis, many of his hits were covers of songs first performed by black artists who were shut out of mainstream fame. However, stars from David Bowie to Lady Gaga have adopted Jerry Lee's signature tricks, like playing the piano with his feet and hands at the same time. But none of them got quite the same reaction as a young Jerry Lee Lewis. Following a legendary career that has lasted 34 years after his induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you might think the killer would be ready for retirement. But after surviving a 2019 stroke, Jerry Lee Lewis announced in March of 2020 that he plans to record an album of gospel covers. He'll sing those old numbers he used to croon with Elvis one last time, before he meets the God he still passionately believes in. Thanks for tuning in to Falls from Grace. We will be back next week with two more episodes. You can find more episodes of Falls from Grace, as well as all of ParCast's other shows on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another story of remarkable success and even more remarkable catastrophe. Falls from Grace was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Nick Johnson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Falls from Grace was written by Yelena War, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Vanessa Richardson and Carter Roy. 